the subject for <coughs> the evening talk is the politics of the, the middle way. Some months ago, the President of the United States had spoken of what he described as a new world order and this was founded on the notion that in the dissolution of the confrontational attitude that was so deeply prevalent in the Cold War that the diminishing of this would be laying the foundation stones for this new world order. We know, of course, that within weeks and probably days within this pronouncement being made, the plans were uh, being laid in the West and in the corridors of power, particularly of Washington and Europe, for there to be a massive and unprecedented deployment of the most sophisticated military machinery and intelligence ever directed to any corner of the world. And we know that 31 countries were actively involved in this, and America sent half of its uh, uh, military air force, most of its uh, uh, warships, a huge army of more than 400,000 personnel to engage in war in a third world against a third world country with a population of 19 million using second-hand uniforms, unfed, dispirited, and with the unwanted and irrelevant war machinery that we had employed some 20 years ago or more. In a, against a place on the earth whose economy was considerably poorer than a place like Portugal in Europe. All of, in all of this, too, it showed itself in the end result in which we understand that the casualty figures for the United States and its allies, I think the United States was an extraordinary number of 79 or something in that region, and it would appear that the deaths of that war against this impoverished country was something in the region of 200,000, included an unprecedented uh, assault and murder of people on the road to Basra as they were fleeing with all the th stolen goods, etc., out of Kuwait. Uh, into southern Iraq. All of this gave a hugely hollow and empty ring to the new world order. It smacked of the old and also it's brought about all of the consequences which we are hearing and knowing of too well. Out of this there has come about a tremendous attempt now to export more military hardware and it's is that in the Arab world, the possibility of some $18 billion worth of arms can now be purchased, and they've had an opportunity to assess what works and what doesn't work. All of this was in the name of victory. All of the celebrations was in the name of victory. The tragedy and the consequences of this, of course, is not only there in, in Iraq and in all the neighboring countries, but also the consequences also flow into our very own lives. The impact and the reproduction 
the uh, continuity of this shows itself in our relationship and in the impact that it has had, the dispirited impact that it has had on people who are caring, thoughtful, kind, wise, active, conscious, intelligent people of the earth have had their hearts damaged by the consequences of the events that were initiated outwardly, certainly last August, but of course the conditions leading up to that with our support, us, the West support, for the selling of arms and the unashamed support of military dictatorships all contributed to a nightmare. One of the, one of the outflows of this horrendous human and ecological tragedy which isn't going to go away is how the number of people in the peace movement and the green movement have had their hopes raised in the dissolution of the Cold War only to have them banished by uh, these events of recent months. And certainly in my talking and meeting with people in uh, England, in Sweden, in Germany, and in the correspondence, in the, in the mailings, in the uh, newspapers let of the alternative movement, one sees again and again that what one of the outflows of all of that is that it's had its impact within the movements themselves. And there seems to be, in my uh, observations, a considerable loss of vision and direction, which in a way reflects the, the deep human hurt and disappointment. And one feels sometimes in the looking at that, that what has been the case and has been, I think, made evident to a number of us over the years that significant social change does not actually take place within government. That the, that the order of government and that the tremendous egotism in government and all that it pretends to be as a spokesperson for the people is a shallow and hollow myth which you and I live under. And the serious movements take place outside of that scope and most of us who are active and concerned are actively protesting about government, about the people who we elect. And I wonder sometimes, and certainly I've long since made a decision for myself, that I will not, under any circumstance, vote for my government, and I will not vote for its elected opposition. Its elected opposition. I prefer to vote for a small minority party, in this case the Green Party, even though it's got a dribbling 2% in the opinion polls, because I think it still stands for something which has some sense of integrity to it, and was the only voice in the polit organized political world in Europe which said again and again, no, 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 and yet again no to this war. And I think we have to look very, very, very carefully at ourselves that in our vote, which is the most weakest and the most nominal gesture of a democratic society, whether our vote for any of the two major political parties is in fact a vote for the continuity of what we have just had over the last six months. When we look at, 
outer situations in our relationship to the outer situations in our way of being in this, in, in this world, of course, of course, and yet again, of course, the world of politics intrudes into every area of our life. It intrudes to such a degree that sometimes we like to think of ourselves, though it is not possible, to be apolitical. And, in fact, I think in our relationship to the circumstances, to be political in this world is to consider actions and its consequences. Political mind is not a mind which necessarily cares two hoots about Washington or London or Paris or, or Moscow or whatever. Political mind is concerned about actions and results and the way that our actions and results has its influence in the world that we live in. Once you and I start considering that, which is, I think, a responsibility of a human being, we're political. Once you say to yourself, I am not going to buy this product, I'm not going to purchase this, once you say to yourself, I'm not going to vote for this, I'm not going to do this, each time you express a no in your life, you're saying, I am a political person, I am a political activity, and I am actively engaged in my democratic rights. And only when we are active can we really say we're engaged in democratic rights. There has been a great proliferation of literature, huge amount, and this huge amount of literature which has been made available to us and has been particularly in the uh, many fields, of course, and in the international green movement, international green politics and local politics, and I was just the other day before coming here in England meeting with my uh, person who runs the local bookshop in the High Street in Totnes, where I live. And I uh, asked him, having a small vested interest in this, I asked him how is the world of green books actively taking place. And speaking with him and with one of the shop assistants, the shop assistant made a very, very telling comment and one which I thought would be uh, worth uh, passing on this evening. She said, people come into the bookshop as they have been doing for the last two or three years and there has been a considerable um, upsurge in interest in green books, how to be green. We are of course obsessed in our culture with the how-to book and these are becoming the phenomenal uh, bestsellers and we are still living rather sadly I feel, in this preoccupation of mine that we can think, we can patch things up through a mechanistic view. We're still influenced by some bizarre philosophy, unexamined. We think, do this, do this, do this, and we we've got a prescription for everything, and we even have it for liberation and awakening, and that really is going too far. <laughs> So there's, there's, this, there, there's the great upsurge of how-to books which take place. And she said, people have come in and they've bought the how-to books. She told me that in the United States, one of them, which has lots of valuable information in it, I think 50 Ways to Be Green, apparently, which sold one and a half million copies in uh, the United States and sold uh, three in Totnes, I was told, <laughs> that this particular book uh, itself 
And she said, out of the residue of, remember, millions of these books of different forms have been sold. She said, out of the residue, her impression of this, that it's led to three changes in uh, Britain and in Europe, and you judge for yourselves here. Um, the use of unleaded petrol, the recycling of um, some um, materials, and a small uh, uh, leaning towards recycled paper. That's the fruit of numerous numbers of how-to books. And then people think, if I'm using unleaded petrol, doing a bit of uh, recycling of my uh, waste, and I'm using um, uh, recycled paper, therefore I am green. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, in these areas, though the information may be made available to us, and we receive information as whether it's of the level of military or whether it's at the level of green, how is our relationship to that? And is any of that which comes to us actively affecting our lives? Is it actually affecting our lives? Have we, are we noticing changes in our life? And are we saying, not only are these changes taking place in our life, but are those changes taking place in our life such that we actually communicate them, we talk, we discuss, we look into it together? Otherwise, we're just part of the hype. Part of the hype. So much so that now in this world of healing the earth and in the literature which has come about, that the green publishers, people concerned with green issues, are now saying now we've, we need, in fact, to drop the word green. It's overused, it's redundant, we have to drop the word environment because people in the space of two or three years are numbed by the repetition of the word. We can't hear the word anymore. And the same extraordinary thing which I noticed in my conversations and I noticed too in myself as well during the, the war. Henrietta and I were teaching in Budgaya together in India. There were about the same number of people at that retreat as sitting in this hall. On January the 16th, under the fiction of going in to liberate Kuwait, came the information on the shortwave uh, BBC radio that the war had got underway. Many of you here will remember the moment where you were when, in, when this information was relayed to you. I had the small task of relaying it to those people in, in the hall who are engaged with their heart, minds and bodies in this retreat, which included seven Israelis there on the retreat. It included uh, a, an Iraqi doctor with family in Baghdad. It included people from the US and elsewhere who had brothers and sisters who were in the military, who had friends who were, who were there. And the shock wave, as many of you will recall when you were first told, the shock wave that took place. And then something began extraordinary to happen out of that, that there seemed to be, for many, many of us, a kind of thirst to know what was going on, what was happening next. And I met with my, uh, a friend of mine who's a, a hairdresser in, the, uh, in Totnes, and I was speaking uh, to her about it. 
And she said to me that while working in the salon and various uh, customers, women and men coming into the salon, it's like through the day she would find herself saying, have you heard anything more? Is there any more news? What's happening now? And finding herself, and others must have noticed this in themselves, staying late up at night to see what the next information was, what the news was. There was a kind of compulsion to know what was going on, what was, what was happening. And much, sometimes it was out of deep concern and out of, out of a sadness and about all of that. And then sometimes friends would say to me, they would come and we would talk, and the friends would say, you know, I'm, I'm getting this information, you know, I can't stand war, I can't stand what's taking place, and yet sometimes there's something inside me which says, go and get Hussein, go and get him, blow him away. And others were say, coming to me who were, who, who were saying, the West needs a real kick up the ass. And, and, and let, let, let the little one give a kick back to the, to the West and show something. And, and people's pullings and pushings were, were being oscillated and moved back and forward in this duality of us and them and the particular conditionings and patterns and tendencies determining the view and thus trapped in the extremes, the extremes of militarism. Where is the middle way? What is the politics of the middle way? And it's not easy for a human being to dig so deep into herself or into himself that one has dug deep and in the face of that outpouring one knows in deep into the lowest bottom place of one's heart that at no sign in time in all of that horrible history from shall we say, from August to the end of the, uh, of the slaughter. At no time in that did one ever take sides. Never got caught up in that kind of extremism and looked holistically, looked totally, looked, and looked for the middle way in all of this. Unprejudiced heart. I think we have to dig very deep. I think we have to dig so deep into ourselves in this life that I don't think there's any room for identity with one's country. I don't think there's any room for clinging and flag-waving and all the symbols which alienate and divide world and in its division generates the extremism. And until we give up this and we actually think holistically, think expansively, feel, feel it, then the divisions and the extremism would take place. And sometimes one was shocked, nothing but shocked, to, to hear the things which were people were saying in the streets and in the shops and, and on the radio and the television and the newspapers. How could we be so susceptible to such jingoism. The greatest protest took place in Germany, and much protest here, of course, in the United States. Somewhat pathetic in Britain, I have to say, pathetic. And in Germany, much, much more. And you know, in the Constitution of Germany, 
one of the elements in its constitution through their bitter experience is they're not allowed to declare war on another country. In the constitution, that is. 200,000 people in some of the demonstrations there. So there's this, there's, there's the extremism. Extremism is when the mind is identifying under the naivety of self-rightness or we are rightness with one side against the other and can't see out of that view, out of that extremism. And in that belief and in the rigidity of it, it is the license for violence and terror, unparalleled terror. Now it would appear that the militarism of Iraq has now found somebody lower in the pecking order, the Kurds. So I say, looking, one has to step out of this conditioned mind. I think we have to give up being an American, being British and, and all those associations so that we can sense in another way. And then we might dare begin to speak of a new order. In that too, then we look at inwardly, as we have been doing today in the small groups. And I think often the outer situations in our life, in fact, not often, in fact are a mirror for the inner life. The unresolved personal problems get easily magnified and generated outwardly and live outwardly. We say, let's look inwardly. Not just as an exclusive form of looking inwardly. Let's look so that we have a sense of the wholeness of it. The wholeness of the view. Unfortunately, we never, we never seem to question our leaders at their psychological level. Sometimes one wishes, instead of having these tedious public debates on the television, they were actually put in the psychotherapist chair. <laughs> Let a good psychotherapist ask the questions. I think we might reveal much more than what is hidden behind that calm demeanor of standing so grossly on the, on the golfing green with a golf club in the hand, talking about the Kurds wandering across in the bitterness and the cold of those mountains. There's something obscene about it. And I think we have to look, as I say, totally. And that totally look, looking is both inwardly and outwardly. And to, in that looking, how is our way of being in the world, how, well, how is that manifesting with us in our way that we live and express our life? And I think in that, with our views, that unless one genuinely understands the politics, therefore that is the action, it's the same thing, the activities of the middle, middle way, you and I will again and again, as it, as it was so abundantly being communicated in the small groups today, be caught in the extremes. One common extreme, and, and that's where the leaning of the peace movement and the green movement and other movements started leaning over that way to, to its cost and its tragedy, both for those in it and those of the planet, was 
the damage done was the movement to the extreme was the feelings of helplessness were exacerbated. The feeling of, I, what can we do? And that feeling in which the world itself and its hugeness and diversity of it seems so overwhelming and it seems overwhelming because it needs a feeling of helplessness to have that feeling, that view. One can only be overwhelmed if one feels helpless. And the determined the circumstances of recent months shifted towards that extremism. And therefore it was demoralizing and de disheartening. And I say, hey, when that happens, how are we feeling at this time in our life? What's the spontaneous response when you think about life on earth today? What immediately arises inwardly in our psyche, in our emotions? When we want to sorry, um, uh, compensate for that, when we want to compensate for that, it swings to the other extremes. And I'm not talking only globalisms in the general, but also how that is in our daily life. As in the small groups today, you were speaking and uh, talking and reporting about some of you about your relationship to situations which you are in people, your personal life, the, the people that you work with, the people that you serve, that you, that you help and give sustenance to and wish to connect with. And again, sometimes in the compensation for the not wanting to feel helpless in that, we swing far over to the other extreme and we want to be in control of circumstances. We want to control the outcome, control the event and that sometimes that wish to control the event is peculiarly enough is coming out of a coming out of human goodness. One wants the best. One wants to have the skills, the resources, the expertise, the knowledge, the technology, the insights, or whatever, to make that person's life better, that tropical rainforest better, that cleanup of the pollution better, the animal rights, whatever it might be. And one wants to be able to affect the change, thus control the circumstances and change them from what they were. But I say, the disheartening and the dispirited feeling which arises in a situation is related to the desire to control. To the desire, even the desire of goodness, to have things in the best possible way happening for those in your own life or in the life of others, that that itself is the invitation to the other. One could put it in another way. In a way, not only do we need a protest movement, in a way, against the so-called bad and uh, evil and unsatisfactory and unjust in this world, in a way, we need to protest about the desire to do good and have it our own way. We need to be aware of that kind of movement and how that particular movement, even the movement of doing good in this world, in a way, unless there is wisdom, that's the politics and the spirituality of the middle way, 
we'll actually be caught up in that and it's a recipe for the other. It's an invitation to it. We're inviting it. When people say to me and you say to yourself, I'm, I'm a doer, I'm really wanting to do good in this world, I'm trying to do something for this world, I hear that and I hear that and it's a very beautiful and thoughtful gesture of human beings but if there isn't wisdom in the words and in the understanding there the shadow of its opposite encroaches into that. As sure as night follows day it does. Sometimes too, with our politics of our, the middle way of our living our, living our life, we then also give consideration to the other two other very, very common extremes, also referred to in the small groups today. And one extreme of those is, peculiar enough, hope. The expression of hope. What is it to hope? If I dare say, as a person who has been coming to the uh, U U.S. Um, twice, twice a year, and in a very s <laughs> small way, I have seen in my visits here uh, since the first visit in '77. I can genuinely say I've, I have seen very little of the uh, environment of the U.S. My uh, depth of experience of the environment um, basically extends from Logan Airport to um, IMS and the uh, occasional um, pizza in the diner in Barry. <laughs> and the other extreme occurs um, on the other coast from San Francisco Airport. I haven't thought of the extremes before, but perhaps I should. Um, San Francisco on the other coast the trip out to Santa Rosa for the retreat there and the odd visit to Denny's. <laughs> so this is my environmental experience, honestly, of uh, the United States, but I like to flatter myself from time to time that I have the immense privilege of a little bit of an insider's view because of what goes on inwardly. And one of the impressions which I have, and it's an, an impression which Europeans do have, of the United States, and please take it or leave it, and uh, please take it, it's probably true. But anyway, <laughs> and, and that is that there is um, a degree of um, optimism and positivity in the United States which uh, is basically um, beyond belief. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I think there's been a kind of period uh, in which there was, in the, perhaps in, in your um, um, founding, uh, founding fathers, who in coming here, uh, there was, hope was raised. It was the land of hope, the land of opportunity. This, this we uh, hear again and again, of course, for many millions, as you and I know, millions in this country as elsewhere that is a very sad sick joke but it's given out as the land of hope the land of opportunity you can get anything you want you can be what you want you can do what you want it's all part which 
has been put out to you again and again and again and again, and it has been done um, elsewhere, but probably in other countries, but probably less successfully than uh, the powers to be here. And I think what that tends to do is that, that the long history, in a way, of hope, of the building up of hope, and there's a certain pleasure, pleasant, pleasantness, a certain pleasure with hope that things will get better, things will improve. And, uh, and people here, more than elsewhere, tend to look this way. And it generates its own vibrations, its own energy, its own vitality. All of that uh, can be pluses. But, and of course the but is with a capital B, U and T here, that how easily it's flip of the coin, which matters so much in the States because of your wretched social system. I shan't speak about that. I promise myself I'll keep off that subject. That the flip of the coin can be fear. Can be fear. If we just think things are getting better, things are improving, things will improve, and we generate that. We get excited for ourselves and for others who seem to be doing something. It tends, I think, to give nourishment to hope. And we think, but if I give up hope, then the fear is, if I give up hope, I'll fall back. I'll fall into despair. I'll fall, I won't feel vitality. I won't feel life. I won't be able to go on. And the view is, I need hope for continuity. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether hope itself is a, an indispensable feature for continuity. So it seems sometimes in our relationship to the, the world, as it were, we put on one set of spectacles and look through that and we call it hope. And then, we, and then that spectacle falls off through all the circumstances, then we look through and we think, fear. We look through one day, we say things are getting better. We look through the next day, we say things are getting worse. And with the alternation of the perception, we tend to believe it as it happens. We tend to think, right now, in my hope, I'm seeing the truth. Right now, in my fear, I am seeing the truth. Perhaps we're only seeing the truth of the extremity of our mind. Perhaps we've forgotten the politics of the middle way, the spirituality of the middle way, the liberating element and factor of the middle way. What would it be to stare hope in the eye with unwavering interest? What would it be to look fear of tomorrow, next week, next month, straight in the eye? for perhaps the first time in one's life, to really look it straight in the eye and say, do I have to buy this sensation? Do I have to live my life again and again being thrown onto it, living out of it as though it has some inherent truth to it? Or can it be that I can perhaps discover again and again freedom from these extremes? the liberating 
element of the middle way. Politically and spiritually. Personally and socially, ecologically and individually. What would it be to live without hope and fear? And I think with these things, with the with awakening and realization. I don't think these things are so far apart. I don't think that our, the immediacy of our immediate potential is such that we have to think long term. I don't think we serve the interests of the earth by worrying about the future. I think that is a significant contribution to the difficulty. And I think where there is worry about the future, I think far, far more effective it is us to say, let me see if I can be liberated from this worry. Then we can serve the interests of the earth, not worrying about it. Because when we worry, what happens, you and I know, when we are worrying about something, we feel that anxiety, that insecurity, and all of that. And when we're like that and we're feeling isolated at the same time, what do we do? We reach out, I want something, I need something, I must get something. To, to fill in my insecurity, my worry, my anxiety, my concern. Whether it's for oneself or whether it's for the earth, worry, in a way, is as much part of the problem. Even though it's coming from thoughtfulness and kindness and concern and compassion and love but, the, but all of that that needs wisdom mm, there's a necessity for wisdom and wisdom means freedom from worry then there's an opportunity to see and understand and one is knows in one's heart of hearts, one is out of fear and out of hope. And I don't think any how-to book or how-to meditation or how-to teacher or whatever is going to be able to write a prescription for that. I would say it's something to be realized right here and now. One realizes in oneself, one does not have to live in the extremes. And one sees the liberating truth of it. And then we see what flowers out of that. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with wisdom and compassion. So let us have our two or three quiet minutes together, shall we please?